0: Dr. Katherine Sanderson is the nationally renowned author of The Positive Shift and has been named one of the country's top 300 professors by the Princeton Review, based on her riveting teaching style as a professor of psychology at Amherst. During our recent Ivy Masterclass with Dr. Sanderson, we'll draw from psychology, neuroscience, and medicine. Dr. Sanderson will enable us to explore science of thought and teach us how to shift our mindset today in order to improve our long-term psychological and physical health.
1: I'm going to start today by telling you a story about my oldest child. Andrew was in public school from kindergarten through eighth grade. In ninth grade, he moved to this elite prep school that he was woefully underprepared for. And he struggled mightily in every possible way. And midway through his first trimester, he received a warning grade of 50 in Spanish. Um, This is a school that uses the traditional 1 to 100 grading scale, so 50 was really. Not good. Uh, so uh, we went in. My husband and Andrew and the guidance counselor and the Spanish teacher, and we all sat. And we're like, what should we do? And all the adults were like, he has to drop the Spanish. And and everybody's like, yes, yes, that, that's going to have to happen. And Andrew goes, but I love the Spanish. And I said, yeah, but you suck at it. And, um, <laughs> and they're going to toss you. you know? and, and he was like, no, no, no but I love it. Uh, and so we agreed that he would get a tutor, that he would meet with the professor you know, once a week and you know, do all these things to kind of you know, go to study hall every night, all these different supports. So we agreed that he could try it for one month. After a month, he, in fact, had raised his grade enough that, that they let him stay. And by the end of his freshman year, he had moved to an A minus in Spanish. The teacher, yes. What? Whoever said what? Yeah, it was very surprising. So uh, and the teacher called me and said, in all of my years of teaching, I've never had anybody go from an F to an A minus. And I said, is there a prize associated with that? Um, (laughs) Turns out there is not. Uh, But I start with that story to illustrate the power of mindset. That all the adults around him said, you got to quit. you got to quit. This is not going well, which it really was not. And Andrew said, no, I can do it. I can totally do it. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today is the advantage of adopting a positive mindset about challenges you face in your personal life, in your professional life, uh, and, and how that can change your happiness your physical health, and indeed, um, as promised, even how long you live. Um, But I want to start by talking about what is mindset. So in psychology, when we talk about mindset, it really means how do you think about yourself? So what do we think about ourselves? But it also means more broadly, how do you think about the world? So personality matters. People vary sort of naturally. Um, Who's heard about the marshmallow study? Raise your hand. OK, a bunch of people. If you haven't heard about it, it's fine. I'm going to talk about it. So this is a classic study that was done in like 1970 uh, at Stanford. And they brought in little kids, so two, three-year-old kids. And they said, um, you can have a couple marshmallows right now. Or if you can wait 10, 15 minutes, we will bring you back an entire bowl of marshmallows. And then the researcher walked out of the room. Of course, it's a psychology study, so they're watching the kid through a one-way mirror. The researcher walks out. Guess what some kids do? Well, immediately. The study's over, like, one second, you know, over. Other kids do something remarkable. They look at the ceiling. They look at their fingers. They look at their feet. They turn away, um, and they wait and wait and wait. And in fact, the researcher then brings them an entire bowl of marshmallows. So that's moderately interesting that you see this, like, huge variation in terms of how long kids can delay. But what's even more important is they followed up these kids every five years since they did the study in 1970. And they found that the kids who didn't eat the marshmallow when they were three, who waited it out, have like a 1,000 better outcomes. They're more likely to graduate from high school. They have better SAT scores. They're more likely to go to college. They're less likely to have credit card cut. They're less likely to be obese. I mean, just like a gazillion different things. Um, And so not eating that marshmallow, which is basically like a personality trait, can you do this delay of gratification, has all these sorts of benefits in terms of looking at long-term, big picture thinking. In what is a weird quirk of fate, my husband is one of the marshmallow kids. Hey. And everybody asks me, what did he do? He doesn't remember what we did last week, and there's no chance he remembers. But, um, <laughs> but he watches a lot of Sports centers, so that bodes poorly, right? Um, uh, the environment that you're in matters. So our mindset is also shaped by the environment, the situation that we are in, in lots of distinct ways. Um, anybody here um, ever eaten when they're not hungry? Ah, there we go. Um, So one of the best ways, maybe some of you have had the pleasure of working as a waiter or waitress, one of the best ways of getting people to order dessert, what is it? Yeah, present it, the dessert tray, the physical dessert tray. You know, again, the description of it, it's whatever. But if you see the actual dessert tray, that's an example. Again, subtle environmental features matter. um, And cultural stereotypes matter. So we also learn about mindset from the cultural stereotypes that we have in our world. So here's a classic one that we've all heard of. Older people are feeble and absent-minded. So that's you know, everywhere in our society, that you know aging is associated with these negative outcomes. And that means that we interpret things in light of these stereotypes about aging. Uh, this point was really brought home to me a few years ago. I, was, I live in Massachusetts. I was scheduled to give a talk in New Jersey one Friday morning. I'd had a very busy day on Thursday, you know, meetings and teaching, and et cetera. I went home, packed, had dinner with my family, finally got in the car at 9 PM. It's a four-hour drive, so that was later than I should have left, but that's when I got in the car. But because I was leaving at 9, I drove wearing what I was going to sleep in. So I wore like a ratty t-shirt and like sweatpants and you know, running shoes, whatever. At 11 o'clock, I'm on the Tappan Sea Bridge, and my husband calls me and says, um, do you know that your suitcase is on the bed? <laughs> I was like, no. No, I did not know that. Um, uh, could you please call and figure out what's open in Princeton you know, before 9 AM when my talk was? And so he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll be right on that. I'll call you right back. So he calls me back, um, and guess what the answer is? Nothing. Oh, no, there is something. Walmart. Walmart, yes. (laughs) Not Target, don't get optimistic. Yeah, um, Walmart. Uh, So I check in the hotel, I get a wake up call for 7 a.m., I drive, you know, wearing my sweatpants to the local Walmart where I buy an outfit. It's not what I'm wearing today, uh, from the Miley Cyrus collection, as it turns out. And um, so I you know, I give my talk, and you know, at at lunch I sort of confess to people around me like what a horrible morning I'd had. And everybody was like, ah, you know, that's a funny absent-minded professor, whatever. But if I had been like um 5 and 60 or 70, people would have been like, she's losing her mind. It's the dementia setting in, right? <laughs> Um, You know, so I'm a college professor, all the time students leave stuff in my office, you know, keys, umbrellas, wallets, phones, you know, all the time, I'm never like, it's the dementia setting in. Again, because it doesn't fit our cultural stereotype. So those are all examples of how um, mindset matters. And I'm going to be talking today um, specifically about how mindset influences what we eat, our health, um, and in fact, aging and longevity. Um, And then I'm going to turn to a topic near and dear to all of us, stress. And one of the major ways that mindset matters is in terms of how we think about stress. Um, So starting off with mindset influences eating. Overwhelmingly, um, mindset influences eating in lots of distinct ways. In one very clever study, researchers brought in people, and they randomly assigned them to one of two conditions. Uh, in the, one of the conditions, they said, it's as much soup as you can have. And there are these bowls of soup. And every time you finish a bowl, just raise your hand and we'll bring you in you know, another bowl of soup. And they always have the people come in hungry. So they say, don't eat for four hours you know, before you've come in. The other group of people were also told you can have as much soup as you want. But in this condition, there was a bowl of soup on the table. And there was a hole in the bottom of the soup and a giant tube that attached to a gigantic mm-hmm. vat of soup underneath the table. So every time you ate soup, the bowl refilled. You could never actually finish the bowl. So you keep eating and eating and eating, and it's just refilling and refilling and refilling. So everybody is told, eat as much or as little as you want. But here's the reality. In one condition, every time you finish eating, you have to identify what you've done. In the other condition, you've never actually finished a bowl, right? You just keep eating and eating and eating. And what they find is that if you don't know how many bowls you're eating, you eat far more because you're unaware of that process of eating. That's an example about how mindset influences what we eat. It's not just are we hungry. It's also this perception of how much are we consuming. When those cues are obvious, we actually eat less than when the cues are not obvious. Um, Another example, portion size. Um, and portion size has been illustrated in tons and tons of different studies. If you give somebody a giant vat of popcorn, um, they eat far more than if they, if you have a small uh, bucket of popcorn, even when they're told you can refill it as many times as you want. In these studies, what's particularly remarkable is they've created settings where you actually come in and watch a movie during the study. So it's like a very sort of natural thing. You're literally in a movie theater. And the popcorn they specifically have made be old, dry cold, like it's not even good, and people will still eat a giant amount if it's in a bat. Um, But let me give you one more example of something that's kind of the opposite how mindset, those two examples are how mindset leads us to eat more. Here's another example, the shape of brownies. They tell people, don't eat for four hours. We want you to come in hungry. And it's a study on taste. So you walk into the lab, you're hungry, and you smell this wonderful aroma of brownies. And you're excited. So you sit down, the researchers are just a minute, they take the brownies out of the oven, you smell the brownies in the air, you're hungry, this is fabulous. Um, And there are indeed brownies, but they are brownies in the shape of dog poop. So you don't think it's actually dog poop like coated with brownie, like you think it's actually a brownie. But for many people, It's hard to eat a brownie looking like dog poop because you're not really supposed to so much, you know, eat the dog poop. And so it becomes very hard for people in that situation even though they know it's not actually dog poop to actually eat it. So these are all examples then about how mindset influences what we're eating. These are ways in which you tweak mindset in various ways. Um, Another example, mindset influences health. And mindset influences health in tons of ways, many of which you already have heard about. Um, Who's heard about the placebo effect? Classic example. Somebody has a headache, you give them a sugar pill, and you're like, this is Advil, this is Excedrin. I feel better already. Um, That's an example of the power of mindset, that believing something is a name brand pill actually leads it to work better. You tell somebody that the pill costs $10, you get faster pain relief than if you tell them it costs a dime. It's another example, just telling people it costs more, it, it, in fact, works better. Just that label of the cost, because we associate better costs, you know, higher cost, with better products. Um, it influences mobility. In one remarkable study that people always find a little creepy, so I'll apologize ahead of time for that. Um, researchers at a Veterans Administration um, hospital in Houston recruited men who were complaining of, or- of knee pain. They randomly assigned these men to one of three conditions. One set of men got actual orthoscopic knee surgery. One set of men, the surgeon cut the knee open, scraped the cartilage, and sewed it back up. Third condition, the researcher, the surgeon, cut the knee open, sewed it back up, created a scar. That's all they did. Then they followed these men for 18 months. And every month they asked them to evaluate, what is your pain? What is your function? Can you go upstairs? You know, how how is your um, uh, flexibility, et cetera? And what they found? Nothing no difference all of those men improved at the exact same equivalent rate now this does not mean that all surgery is fake and no one should ever have surgery and all <laughs> surgery is just in your mind you know whatever so it doesn't so don't overinterpret it but what it means is that the power of believing i might feel better I might actually experience a change. um, And I've been in pain, and now I'm not going to be, leads people, in fact, to feel better. And that's an example, again, of the power of mindset. Believing I'm going to feel better led these men to actually feel better. Uh, And finally, in in one of the most intriguing, and I don't have a good answer, and spoiler alert, I'm going to be looking to you for an answer, another study very clever study was done with women who had jobs cleaning hotel rooms. So these were literally women who had jobs as hotel cleaners. They randomly assigned the women to one of two conditions. One set of women were given information about what the Centers for Disease Control recommends about healthy physical activity. It's really important to get, you know, 45 minutes um, three times a week. You know, that's a really important part of staying healthy, you know, etc. That's what the Center for Disease Control recommends. Another group of women were told that same thing. Center for Disease Control recommends 45 minutes, you know, three times a week. And did you know that the work you do cleaning hotel rooms counts? If you are vacuuming, if you're changing bed sheets, if you're cleaning a bathroom, all of that counts as physical activity. So that's all they did. Everybody's told it's important to get 45 minutes three times a week. And one of the groups is told, and by the way, cleaning hotel rooms counts. Then they went back to these women four weeks later, and they examined how much they weighed, their body fat, and their blood pressure. And what they found is the women who'd been told what you're doing already counts had lost weight, had lost body fat, and had lower blood pressure than they had at the start of the study. So now I'm turning it over to you. Why? Who has a theory? And we don't know. Like this is, like, this is a legitimate, like there is no right answer. What's the explanation for why being told what you're doing counts may, in fact, have changed people's bodies in really important ways? Theories. Who has a theory about what happened? Yeah? If you think you used to work out
0: in addition to your job, maybe that causes stress. Like, what am I going to do how am I going to fit it into that? That raises
1: cortisol levels, which raises you know, the amount of fat in your body. Is. Sure. OK, good. So these are women who probably don't have a lot of extra time probably don't have a lot of extra money, you know, join a gym or, you know, fit the time in, et cetera. So being told, hey, you need to do this is really stressful. But the other women were told, you need to do this, and you are, <laughs> and you are. And so that counteracts it. Okay, so one explanation is just that's the difference, and that telling people increases stress, and the other. Yeah? I feel like there's, you know, there's a mind-muscle connection. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, you know, I think I, I'm someone who's personally into fitness, mm-hmm. whenever I'm training with a trainer or training. I always really notice a difference if Mm -hmm. my mind is elsewhere and I'm not really focused or Mm -hmm. not really thinking about what I'm doing. Is Mm -hmm. good for me? Um, I don't feel like I get as good of a workout and I don't feel as good after that workout. So I think if you actually measured my, I don't know, my heart rate or like you had some type of quantifiable measure that you tested after these two types Mm -hmm. of workouts where my mindset was different,
1: you definitely see a difference. So maybe the women who are told this, were more vigorous. Maybe they vacuumed more vigorously. Maybe they really you know, um, tried to do things that were more intentional, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a distinct possibility. Um, yeah? Maybe because you
0: think you worked out, or clinical worked
1: out, maybe you're more careful when you're going to eat a burger. You're like, hey. Right, right. So I, hey, you know what? I already worked out. I really need to be mindful because you know, this is what I'm doing. It's my new thing. And so maybe it led them to make other changes, right? Maybe it led them to say, I'm gonna be careful about what I eat, I'm gonna take the stairs instead of the elevator. So maybe these women were like, there is hope, you know, I, I was stressed, I couldn't fit the time in, now I've done it. And it's gonna lead me to think about other things I do in my life in different ways. Anyone else have a have a thought about differences? So those are all great explanations, and I wish I had the answer. Um, But these are the kinds of things that they're now tackling to try to see what are the explanations for why this mind-body association uh, is so beneficial in all these ways. But what's really most important um, is that when we look at the data on the impact of mindset on aging and longevity, it's extraordinarily profound. I'm going to give you a few examples. Um, If you have older adults come in and read an article saying, natural brain degeneration occurs with age, it's very natural to have some memory loss. Um, And other people read an article about how when you're older, if you've learned more things, you've acquired more wisdom. And that actually stays with you. You might think that wouldn't be true, but older people perform just as well. Reading one of those two articles changes how people score on a memory test. If you tell people you're going to do well, they do better. If you tell older adults you're not going to do so well, you know your brain is degenerating. You, in fact, don't. very clever study done actually at NYU, brought in college students, had them complete a task in a computer. Unbeknownst to the students, while they were completing the task, words flashed at a subliminal level, so below the level of consciousness. Half the students got primed with neutral words, so random words. The other half got primed specifically with words that were designed to cue aging. So wrinkled, you know, arthritis, uh, shuffleboard, early bird dinner, you know, whatever. So um, again, subliminally, below the level of consciousness. The researchers said, thank you so much for coming in. You know, the study's over. And the person walked out of the room. They thought the study was over. They were wrong. Uh, what they were doing is timing how long it took the person to walk down the hall to the elevator at the end of the hall. That's what they were measuring. And what they found was that people who've been primed, again, subliminally with the old age words, walked slower to the elevator. Now, it wasn't like they like hobbled or, you know, that, like, so it was not, you know, like this crazy big effect, but it was a significant effect. And this, again, is below the level of consciousness you see this effect happening in terms of walking speed. Uh, one more example uh, cardiovascular problems. They've evaluated people's stereotypes about aging. When you age, you know you get debilitated and you develop all sorts of health problems, you know, et cetera. and then they follow people to see do they have any cardiovascular incidents, you know, angina, heart attack, you know, et cetera. And what you see is that people who have positive um, old age stereotypes at significantly less risk of having any cardiovascular event when they follow them up 10, 15 years later. Um, in one particularly remarkable study, Adults ages 50 and older came in. They measured stereotypes about aging. Things keep getting worse as I get older. As you get older, you get less useful. Again, so, you know, sort of common stereotypes. And then they followed them for 23 years. So the same people. They completed these measures, followed them up 23 years later. Adults with positive stereotypes lived on average seven and a half years longer than those with negative stereotypes. And that's taking into account family history, BMI, whether you smoke, you know, blood pressure, all these other things that are associated. So this is a powerful example about how what we believe about ourselves and the world influences longevity. But here's the most important question, and some of you may already be going here. Um, how? Right? What's the mechanism? Because when I said that, many of you were like, No. Whoa. Um, And that's really the most important question. And kind of like this study with the hotel cleaners, that's really what we have to unpack. That's what we have to understand is how is mindset having a mechanism. And so let me give you a few examples. One possibility is that it gives people a greater sense of personal control. I can do something about that. So your example of um, exercising more deliberately in a more mindful sort of way. So that's a sense of perceived control. I can do this. And so it may be that people who are having, adopting positive stereotypes about aging have a sense of, I can control this aging process. And that's beneficial. Uh, in one study done a number of years ago uh, at a nursing home, Researchers went into a nursing home, so again, you know, all older people, and by floor, they assigned the residents of the nursing home to one of two conditions. One set of people, they said, we really want to inspire, you know, better life in the nursing home. So we're going to give each of you a plant, and don't worry, the nurse is going to take care of it. And um, we're going to do a movie night. Here's a list of movies, and it's going to be on Wednesdays. And we're going to do a game night, and here's a list of games, and that's going to be on Thursday night. So they gave them all of these extra perks, plants movies, game nights. But the nursing home staff set it all up. It was all set up. In the other condition, they said, we want to increase life um, in the nursing home. We want to make it better. So we have a bunch of plants. If you want a plant for your room, come and pick up the plant you want. And by the way, you have to take care of it. We're not taking care of it. Um, We're going to do a movie night. Write down the movies that you'd like to see, and which night would you like them to be. We're going to do a game night. Which game nights would you like to have and which night of the week? So everybody got plans, games, movies, but half of the people got to control it and half the people, it was foisted upon them. Then they looked at death rates in this nursing home 18 months later. Now, it's a nursing home, people die, right? I mean, that's not shocking. Um, overall, the death rate in the nursing home was 25% of people had died 18 months later. People who were in the, were are giving you all this stuff, 30% had died. Now, that doesn't mean that they died at a faster rate. That was not a significantly significant rate. so 25 versus 30. But people who had been told you choose the plant, you choose the game night, etc., 15% had died. And that's a substantial decrease. So there's an example of giving people perceived control, maybe an especially beneficial part of again adopting a positive mindset. Um, better health habits. Um, so I think your idea before about the, the um, maybe you think about eating a burger, right? That example. This is a similar idea. So maybe it's that people who have this positive mindset are like, you know what, aging, I'm going to continue to be strong and vibrant, et cetera, so I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to do other things that in fact um, might be bad for my life. And then finally, lower physiological reaction to stress. And that was your point, right? That, again, having the sense of stress. So you guys did a wonderful job of picking out these different elements. So another possibility is that having a positive mindset lowers your physiological reactivity in terms of stressful events. And that's true if you look at neurological levels. So if you look at brain patterns of brain activation related to stress, it's also true if you look at things like blood pressure, cortisol levels, et cetera. And so reducing the experience of stress has lots of beneficial effects in terms of physical well-being, in terms of psychological well-being. And that brings me to, I think, the most important thing that I'm going to talk about. And that is how we think about stress, which, of course, is all around us, has a tremendous impact on our psychological well-being and our physical well-being. That throughout uh, society, there's an assumption that stress is very negative, that stress is bad for you, stress is debilitating, and stress has all of these negative effects. Um, So this is sort of a common example. The effects of stress are negative and should be avoided. But here's the power. We can actually tweak our stress mindset to think about stress in a more positive way. Experiencing stress facilitates my learning and growth. I'm being pushed to do new things. I'm growing, I'm being challenged, I'm being pushed, I'm learning new and different things. That's an example of adopting a positive mindset looking at stress. Another example, experiencing stress depletes my health and vitality. You know, I'm I'm overwhelmed by stressful experiences. It's so bad for you, et cetera. Or you can think experiencing stress enhances my performance and productivity. I am alive, alert, energized, and active under conditions in which I'm being pushed in a certain way. And these are examples of things that are all within our own control. Now, some people in the room, some people in the world do some of these more naturally than others. There are people who are more negative in their thoughts. There are people more positive in their thoughts. But here's the key. No matter where you start in terms of thinking about a stress mindset, you can get better. You can learn to adopt more positive ways. And we're going to do a little exercise in a minute to give you a sense of that. So I wanted to talk, finally, about the role of perception. And I'm going to tell you a few stories of things that happened in my life. But I want you to be thinking about ways in which you can adopt a more positive mindset about stress if it's not something that comes naturally to you already. Uh, So when I was, shortly after graduating from college, uh, I was dating this guy, we were living in Atlanta, and we had plans one weekend to go and have a picnic. So we'd you know, gone to the store, we had purchased food, we were in his car. This was a long time ago and there were no cell phones. That's an important part of the story. I know that's very hard to wrap your mind around, but there were no cell phones. Uh, so about five minutes um, outside of town on this very busy interstate, uh, his car gets a flat tire. So he pulls to the side of the road and I'm in the passenger seat freaking out. Oh my god, it's gonna be really expensive, and we're gonna have to get the tar towed and I'm gonna have to stay alone with the car while he goes and gets a tow truck, and like this is just terrible, and like I am like spiraling out of control. And my boyfriend turns to me and he's like, just gonna change the tire. It'll be like 10 minutes. I was like, what? And he gets out of the car, he takes the jack out of the trunk, and the car goes up, and the tire goes off, and the tire goes on, and and it was like 10 minutes. And I got back in the car and I was like, well, I did not see that as possible. Um, and again, so for me, it was this is a disaster, this is terrible, and for him it was like 10 minutes. That's an example. Same experience, different people see in different ways. Uh, another example, my um, oldest child, the Spanish scholar, uh, when he was in like um, second or third grade, had this dear, sweet teacher, um, Miss Sauter. She was like 22 years old. And uh, she was very nice. But so I go in to see her for parent-teacher conference. And she says, I'm so glad that you came in because I'm really worried about Andrew. And I said, okay, well, you know, what are you worried about? And she says, I'm worried that he has OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So... I have a PhD in psychology. Um, also, I live with Andrew. And, um, and at this time, it's like his room looks like a bomb hit it. It's like he doesn't use the hamper. It's like 50-50 if he flushed the toilet. So um, when she's like, I think he has OCD, I'm pretty much like, don't get my hopes up, right? I mean, like, seriously. So I'm like, and, and, and why do you think he has OCD? And she goes, I'll tell you why. Throughout the entire day, he gets up out of his chair, he walks across the room, and he sharpens his pencil. And he does this throughout the entire day. And I think he can't function unless he has a very sharp point on his pencil. So I get home and I'm like, Andrew, what the hell are you doing with the pencil sharpener? Um, and now guesses. And there are two things that people always guess. They're both good guesses. One is right and one is wrong, but they're both good guesses. What's he doing with the pencil partner? Guesses. Yes, he's totally bored. He's an eight-year-old boy. He's going bonkers. He's totally bored. And he's learned if you break the pencil lead, you get to walk in a socially acceptable way. Um, And that's what he's done. Guess what the other thing is people guess? Men often guess this one. There's a cute girl. girl. There's a cute girl. That's the other one. So the men are often like, there's a cute girl, that's the shortener. That's the other yeah. So and that's also a good guess, but that's it. But those are the two guesses. And so yes. All right. But so there's another example again about, you know, for Miss Sauter, this was OCD. For Andrew, he's taken actually a very stressful situation and he's found a way that he can walk. Um, third example. Uh, my middle child, Robert, is a total introvert. He's you know, the kind of person who invites two kids to his birthday party. He's, you know, quiet. Um, you know, very introverted. So when he was heading to school, I think he was in like fourth or fifth grade. It was the day of the standardized testing, so the MCAS test um, in Massachusetts. And who here has heard about the massive stress and anxiety that kids face? with the standardized testing, right? I mean, we've all heard about it. So he was heading off to school and I was really worried about you know, how he was going to feel. And so we sat at breakfast and I said, listen, you know, I, I know that um, this is a really stressful day. You have to remember they're testing the school, they're testing your teacher, they're not testing you. I know it's going to be a really hard day. and Just try to take some deep breaths you know, and, and it'll be over. And he looks up at me and he goes, standardized testing day is my favorite day all year. I was like, well, good, good. Well, have a good day. And mask why and he said it's so quiet everybody just sits and fills in the bubbles and you don't have to read aloud you don't have to work with a partner (laughs) it's it's totally relaxing i love standardized testing i was like well you go and you have a good day but but again that's an example about how we can all Think about the same situation in different ways. That it can be this really stressful, intense thing, or it can be this, in fact, very relaxing, calming, you know, experience. Those are all examples, again, from my life, of the power of mindset. And one of the reasons why I love talking about this is that there are tremendous benefits of learning about this power of perception. And in a really profound study, they brought in employees of a large international finance institution. And they showed them one of two videos. So some people saw a video describing what I've described to you today. Stress is enhancing. It's invigorating. um, You do your best work. You're energized, et cetera. And other people saw stress is debilitating. Stress is upsetting. Stress is bad for your health. You should avoid it. Then they followed up with these people later on. And what they found was that employees who saw the Stress is Enhancing video showed fewer symptoms of anxiety and depression and better work performance. So learning to change your mindset about stress led to substantial benefits in terms of psychological well-being and in terms of physical health and in terms of work productivity. So across every dimension, learning that you can think about stress in a more positive, enhancing way was beneficial. And and that's really essential. So as Jack Welch said, your career isn't always linear. But what matters is how well you get back on the horse. And that's the idea that when bad things happen to us, personally, professionally, it's not about avoiding all those things. It's about how do you think about them? How do you adopt a more positive mindset when things maybe don't go your way, when things are going poorly? How can you bring yourself out of that? And there's some people who do it very naturally. There's some people who find it very easy. There's some people who really struggle with it. I'm one of the ones who really struggles with it. And so if you're one who really struggles with it, there are lots of things that you can do. And that's really the good news, is that mindset can change. Comes easier to some of us than others to adopt a positive, uh, generous mindset in terms of positivity. But all of us can get better at doing it. We can get better about doing it by learning this power of mindset, by practicing in our own lives, and also um, by finding people in our lives that help bring that out in us. Who here has someone in their life who is consistently positive um, and you feel better when you're around them? Who has somebody like that? All right, now put your hands down. Who has somebody in their life who is like consistently negative and gloomy? See, and there's always like more hands for the second question. And, and, and one of the real challenges is that the people that we're around often can have a very big impact. So I will encourage you, if you're someone who um, doesn't come by this naturally, find, find people in your life who can help bring it out in you because that really helps. When I sat uh, in that car after my boyfriend changed the flat tire, I was like, I should marry him. And that is my husband um, <laughs> and because I was literally like this is not my forte and and this is something that's gonna help me so um, we're now gonna take a minute um, and I'm gonna uh, have you all break into little groups and what I want you to do in your little group is to talk about a time in which you've thought about something in a negative way that you could have thought about in a positive way so take a minute but I want you to practice in your own lives what are ways in which you could take a negative a stress it could be in your personal life it could be in your professional life and what what are ways in which you could adopt and bring to that a more positive mindset? So again, group off with little partners as you did at the beginning, and we're going to, t- going to take a few minutes and do this and, um, and start practicing. Go. Mm-hmm. Who is daring enough to share? Uh, I'd like to get a couple examples from people that you can share yours or you can share somebody else's in your groups. But uh, who's, uh, who has uh, one that they could share as an example about doing this switch in terms of mindset and, and stress? Who has an example of something they can share?
0: So, this was when I was really young, but um, I went to an eye doctor, and yeah, you see the result.
1: So, uh, Hopefully, he didn't cause it. I don't know if that's I mean, the, result, right? the result, right? You... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I huh? said, yeah, I want to be an
0: astronaut or a professional tennis player. And then he said, no, you're never going to do that with those eyes. That's, that's impossible. So, then I lost all interest in, in both of the questions. So, yeah.
1: And is there a positive? So that was an example of the negative. That was the, weren't you waiting for, and now I'm an astronaut. Weren't you waiting for like the positive? Okay, but right, there's an example in which somebody told you, yeah. you can't do this, and you believed it and gave up on that. Oh, yeah, well, You're getting prompted to okay, say okay, something yeah. more positive at the yeah, end? Okay. Later, so I okay. high <laughs> grades first, and then I got bored of
0: it, so I got lower grades, and then my mom said, well, a good carpenter is also really valuable to society. And then I thought, well, no, I'm not going to do that.
1: I'm going to get high grades again. I'm not going to be a carpenter. So that's... Yeah, so there, there was that. the, you'll be doomed to this. Okay, good, good. Um, other examples of people thinking about how they could adopt a stress in, in, in a different way. Yeah. Um, one of the people in my group had um, talked about how she was given quite a bit of additional workload and at the beginning it was very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. She thought
0: very negatively, like, mm-hmm. I Mm -hmm. Good professional
1: career. Good, and that's a great example. And and you know, the the impact in terms of professions of thinking about things in a positive mindset when things are getting overwhelming, you know, too many uh, things to do, et cetera, is a really important strategy for all of us to get better at. Um, anyone else have one that they want to share? Mm-hmm. It's a little masochistic thing in that, but yeah, um, good, good, right, right, great examples, great examples. And, and so here's the thing, let's have a show of hands. Who here naturally finds it very easy to find the positive? Who here does that pretty naturally? Wow, you guys are good. And who here kind of struggles a little bit more with trying to find the positive? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm totally in that group. Um, and, and here's the key, that for some people it does come very easily. But for other people who maybe it doesn't come so easily to, there's lots of things that we can do uh, to work on and to improve and do a more positive mindset. So I'm going to now give you um, strategies. And I give specific strategies because my hope is that you've enjoyed this, that that you've learned something, et cetera, that you've been entertained, but I also really hope that you'll take something away from tonight that you can use moving forward. That it's not just, yeah, I spent you know that time at the Ivy event, but that moving forward you'll be like, you know what, I could do this differently. And so I'm giving 10, and I give 10 because my hope is that I'll find something that speaks to everybody here. And there might be different ones that speak to different people here. So I'm going to give you these 10. uh, And then I'll turn it over to Q&A at the end. And I will also say that anybody who wants a copy of this entire presentation, the very last slide will be my email address. And if anybody would like a copy of this entire deck, just shoot me an email and I'll send it out to you right away. Um, So uh, buy the cheap brand. (laughs) but put it in the expensive bottle. These are going to vary in terms of the, you know. It's totally true, isn't it? Does anybody already do this? Yeah, there you go. Good for you. Um, overwhelmingly, we've talked about the differences. Buy the generic, put it in the Advil. Um, uh, initially, you're like, oh, this doesn't seem right. But the reality is name brand medications absolutely do work better because you think that they are name brand medications. (laughs) That's the the only thing. And and I talked before about the example, um, telling somebody this is a $10 shot, you're having this injection. um, People are like, I feel so much better than if you're told this is a $0.10 shot. And again, these are simple, simple effects. But believing that things cost more overwhelmingly leads them to work better because of the power of the placebo. And this is just a really simple example. Uh, Two, go for a walk. Maybe like not tonight so much. but, uh, but lots of research has shown that the very act of walking is tremendously beneficial. And this is not exercise, so don't mistake this for exercise. This is go for a walk. What's good about going for a walk? And there are lots of things. What's good about going for a walk? Anyone? Anyone has a thing? Yeah. You get outside. You get outside. So one, if you walk outside in nature, it's tremendously beneficial. They've actually done studies where they have people walk outside in nature, and then other people like walk along a corridor inside. Walking outside is significantly better. Okay, so um, you get outside, you exposure to nature. What else is good? Yeah, helps you clear your mind. mind. Has anybody had a time which they were feeling like anxious, worried, whatever? You go outside and you you come back and it's gone, right? So it's good for psychological well being. Gets the blood flowing. Gets the blood flowing. It's very good for you cardiovascularly. So people are like, oh, I've got to go to the gym or whatever. Just walking is tremendously beneficial. Um, Anyone else have something? Of your routine. Oh, yeah, 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 right. So it changes things up. So it changes things up so that you're in a rut, you know, stand up, uh, get outside. Um, one more thing it does for people creativity. There is lots of evidence that creativity is enhanced. By the simple act of walking. Um, I love this quote, which I think is, you know, sort of illustrates this. So, me thinks that the moment my legs begin to move, my thoughts begin to flow. Research has shown that if you bring people in and you have them say, think about different creative things you could do, and some people sit at a desk, and other people are told, think about it while you walk. Think about it while you walk. The people who are physically engaging in the act of walking are actually doing better. Um, And so these are, again, simple examples that walking is good, as people identified here, psychologically, physically, getting out of your rut, creativity, spending time in nature, that all of those things are really beneficial. Three someone. Now this is like the Me Too movement. This gets a little scary. But um, so this means like with consent. This is like a with consent kind of a hug. Um, And so um, overwhelmingly, uh, research shows that when you hug someone, it leads to better physical health. In one study, they brought in people. They measured how often you get hugged. So they said, you know, do you get hugged every day or, you know, once a week or, you know, whatever. And then with the people's permission, They inserted a cold virus in their nostril. Not like Ebola, like a cold virus, like not, you know. Um, Cold virus in their nostrils. Then they followed them for four weeks. And every day, they tested symptoms of a cold. Are you coughing, runny nose, you know, flu, et cetera. Um, They collected uh, antibodies to the cold. They collected saliva samples to measure antibodies to the cold. And every night, they gathered the people's used tissues and weighed them to measure mucus production. Across <laughs> yes. every dimension, people who were hugged more had, were less likely to develop a cold. Why? Theories. What is it about hugging? Resistance. You got contact with more Yeah, yeah, so one is it, it builds up your body. It's like you know, daycare workers you know, with like, um, is, uh, infectious toddlers. Yeah, so one possibility is that it, it, it increases your, your body's willing, ability to fight off disease. What else? What else is good? Anyone else? Yeah, it reduces stress. So the physical act. Who here has heard about um, kangaroo care? Anybody know what I mean when I say kangaroo care? So kangaroo care is um, done with prenatal babies. So babies that are born, um, you know, low birth weight. And what they found is that skin-to-skin contact um, increases their body weight. It lowers their blood pressure. It's tremendously beneficial. So the touch of another person is tremendously impactful. People who are hugged regularly have an increase in something called oxytocin, a chemical in the body that's about nurturing and connection, and it's good for our health. So getting hugged and hugging people is actually a really important part of building close relationships, but also improving our physical health. Um, Four, get a dog and stare into its eyes. Yeah, Do you have a dog? This is like my number one
0: stressor. i said that in
1: my thing. Is having a dog? Is getting a dog. Yeah. Who here has a dog? Um, So, y'all are going to live longer, Um, so now we've divided people. Um, Research has shown, and so that's also good. So research has shown that when people look into their dog's eyes, they have an increase in their brain of this chemical oxytocin. It's the exact same brain that that is increased in women immediately after they've given birth. It's actually increased during orgasm, after sex. Um, So it's, again, again, a chemical that makes you feel good. People who are looking into their dog's eyes have an increase in oxytocin. What is particularly remarkable, so does the dog. So the dog looking at you also has this increase in oxytocin. So it goes both ways. And it's really why there's this connection. Now, in what is a little bit weird, they've also done these studies in which they have people come in and look at wolves' eyes. Again, don't ask how they do these studies. But, um, but safely, safely look at a wolf's size, and, and wolves don't show that increase. And so that suggests that there's something that happened in sort of an evolutionary chain of separating dogs from wolves. And it seems to be this bonding hormone kind of a thing. Um, sorry, sorry. And this is when people are like, I have a ferret. I have a turtle. No. Um, <laughs> It's kind of just the dog. Um, and, and the big reason for that is it's very hard to stare into a cat's eyes. Why? Because a cat what? Doesn't care. Tag has no interest in looking at your eyes. So it's actually very hard to get the cat to do it. So I'm sorry for people who are like, but I love my cat. That's still fine, but it's not, it's not the oxytocin. Um, five, smile even when you aren't happy. Um, so true, isn't it? Um, Who has heard about the um, fake it till you make it idea? This is the idea. Um, And what's remarkable is that the mere act of smiling not only changes how people react to you, which of course it does, smiling reduces pain, changes your body. I'm going to talk about two really remarkable studies. Brought in people in one study. Had them hold chopsticks in their teeth. Neutral expression... Mild smile, big beaming smile. So you held chopsticks in your teeth. And then they said, we want you to keep your hand in a bucket of freezing cold ice water until you can't stand it anymore. When you can't stand it anymore, pull your hand out. And what they found is that people who held their expression in this big beaming smile kept their hand in the water significantly longer. It changed how their body responded to pain. Another study. They looked at rookie baseball card photos. So men playing professional major league baseball. They got their rookie baseball cards. They measured the facial expression on these cards. And then they looked at how old the men were when they died. Men who had a flat expression lived to about 73. Men who had a mild smile lived to about 75. Men who had a big beaming smile lived on average to be 80. Remarkable difference of seven years as a function of the facial expression. And this took into account. Blood pressure, obesity, chewing tobacco, all sorts of other things that are associated with life expectancy. Um, and one of the explanations may be going through life with a big smile changes how your body physiologically responds to pain, changes how people react to you. So smiling, and again, this isn't, this isn't being happy. <laughs> this is just smiling. <laughs> the act of smiling is beneficial. Uh, six, spend money on the right things. Um, so we hear lots in our society about you know acquiring different possessions, blah, blah, blah. The reality is we can spend money in better and worse ways. It's not how much money you have. It's how you spend it. So how do you get better happiness? Um, spending money on experiences. And so that could be travel, um, tickets to the big game. Um, this is a picture of my brother's family. My brother lives in Chicago. Um, and Matt has been a longtime season ticket holder for the Chicago Cubs, which for years has been a losing financial endeavor. Um, and, uh, A couple of years ago, he called me and said, what should I do with my World Series tickets? I could take my wife and two kids to a game or I could sell them for $10,000. What should I do? And I said, Well, Matt, what the research on science of happiness would say, which is what I said, um, is I said you should do one of two things. You should either go to the game, have this wonderful experience with your family that you'll reflect back on, or you should sell the tickets, take the 10000 take a wonderful trip, you know, go to Disney, go to California, you know, do some wonderful trip. What you shouldn't do is buy new living room furniture. So they went to the game, hence the picture. Luckily, it was the only game they, they won at Wrigley. But again, they um, you know, reflected back on it. They still, of course, you know, have cherished that time, uh, et cetera. So spending money on experiences is a very good way to spend money. Um, what's not so good? Belongings. Expensive watch, purse, you know, car, whatever. Initially, it's exciting. And then it's just your watch. It doesn't have the lasting benefits. As no one says on their deathbed, I should have bought more crap. No one is thinking that. Um, And as philosopher Roger Corliss said, trying to be happy by accumulating possessions is like trying to satisfy hunger by taping sandwiches all over your body. Does not make you happy. Um, And now, through the miracle of technology, I think we are going to have a video. Are we? Yes. Um, and, and so I'll just set up, this This is always a little bit of a tricky part, but it, but it really is a cute video. Uh, so this is a video that occurred a few years ago. Uh, and my friend called me and said, my dad's going to be the, on the Today Show. You need to watch it. And I watched it and I called him and I was like, Steven, your dad's going to live forever. Um, so I think we're going to get it. and it's like it's like five minutes or something, but it's very, very cute and you'll like it. And I'll move out of the way. Can you all see it with these chairs here? Can you see it with the chairs? 50
0: and Savannah met a group of guys who really can't wait for this game. It's, they're amazing. Most of us dream of attending even one Super Bowl, but a group of five friends have been to all 49 games, and they're about to make it 50 this weekend. Their story is about a lot more than football, and they've never shared it together, until now. Where have you been? 50 years ago, on a lark, these five friends from back east, Sylvan Shekler, Lou Rappaport, Shragus, Larry McDonald and Harvey Rothenberg decided to attend a football event no one had really even heard of. It was called the World Championship Game. Now it's called the Super Bowl. They had such a great time they went the next year and the next until five years became 10 and 10 became 20. It would go on to be a lifelong tradition going back to the Super Bowl every single year. Eventually calling their posse the Super Bowl V. Why do you think this group clicked?
1: Everyone here is a family man, and if that worked, I felt we'll have a family and we'll get together.
0: And none of us liked to drink, so it worked out. <laughs> I could see that about you. It included nicknames there's Prez, Prof, Chicago Lou, Larry Mack, and The Fog. They have personalized jackets and sweatsuits, rings, bathrobes, and even a racehorse name. What else? Super Bowl Five. I said to myself, when we get to the track, he's running his number five, and he's a Super Bowl Five. I bet five hundred on him to win. You know what happened? Came in fifth. <laughs> They only have one rule, no wives. Although at times the rule has been bent. One or two times my wife would come while we were at the game, she'd come and go into my hotel room and wait for me to come back. That wasn't your wife. Who are you kidding? We were there. Sure, they're just was kidding. Wife. Your wife has red hair, she's 5'11". That, that was nice. <laughs> <the next time>. Just imagine they have seen every play in Super Bowl history, from Joe Montana's touchdown pass to John Taylor, to Scott Norwood's missed field goal attempt, and for the four New Yorkers in the group, the sweetest play of them all.
1: When the Giants beat New England, and New England was about to go undefeated, and we beat them on this uh, miraculous
0: catch. David Tyree oh, catches Sarah, that ball. To me, that was the
1: best of all, to, to beat the Patriots, So.
0: They remember when the halftime show was a marching band and tickets were, hold on to your hats.
1: The first ticket
0: was 10 bucks. Ten bucks. And when one Miss Janet Jackson had a wardrobe malfunction. Who said, look at this. I said, what?
1: I almost missed it, but I saw it. Uh.
0: <laughs> but perhaps the most moving for these men, all veterans, all deeply patriotic, was Super Bowl 25 during the height of the Gulf War. When Whitney Houston sang the national anthem, and F-16s flew over in missing man formation, we were sitting in front of some professional football players who played for a different team. But we turned around, tears. Was yeah. There was not a dry eye in the house. Yeah, it yeah. yeah. was. DSW. It was. That was the most emotional time I think we've ever had. Dream. It's a commitment to each other which has never been broken, even in tough times, like when Harvey's father passed away a week prior to the game. The guys came over and talked to me and talked to my wife, and then uh, they all insisted that I had to go. And I went, but, you know, with a lot of pain in my heart in times of financial difficulties, like when Larry's business was struggling. But I didn't have the funds to go, and these guys says, no, you're going. And so they picked up my tab for, for that year. And... Wait, wait, Larry, you still, you still owe us money. Yeah. No, pay due. After all these years, to reach 50 years is quite a milestone. And have you been thinking about that anniversary and what it means? Oh, sure does hit me sometimes and I thank the Lord we're together.
1: Nothing is forever Savannah. We all understand that but we've
0: been blessed to have had the opportunity to say this is 50 years. And I've been thinking about 60 Super Bowl 60 and where we're gonna go and if we're gonna still play golf and that's what I've been thinking about. You would say keep it going. Exactly. And you all feel that way keep it going as long as you can. Yeah. God's been so good to uh, us. It's unreal devoted to each other and we're devoted to the Super Bowl. Wow, a great uh, that's story. Amazing, that brotherhood. Yeah, any idea where guys. their seats are for the game? But you know, the NFL does, because they've obviously heard of these five, right. and yeah. so they set aside some tickets for them to purchase, and this NFL is going to actually honor them this weekend, oh, wow. and some that's of the folks great. have been to the Super Bowl many times. That's I adore them. Story. I feel like I have five new friends. And what's I... your nickname they gave you? Yeah, so I even got a nickname <laughs> for them. So they all have a nickname. Mine is Southern Comfort. Yes, and the funniest really. thing is, I met Sylvan, who's at the bottom there in the middle. We met on an airplane, and he had Happened to tell me the story, and he said, If we make it to 50, I'm going to give you the story, Savannah, as long as the guys agree. So,
1: (laughs) that was was really nice. Thank you very much for the
0: opioid my doctor prescribed for my chronic back pain. Now we're going to back me up.
1: (laughs) There is always the downside (laughs) of the. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, (laughs) uh, Wasn't that good? Yeah, and, and so my, so my friend, um, Stephen, was like, my dad's going to be in show. So I watched it, and I called him, and I was like, Stephen, your dad's going to live forever. Because it's, it's actually a perfect illustration of the sort of mind-body connection that you can see that there's all this anticipation about spending money on experiences. You can see this bonding in terms of this connection um, with these guys and that sort of power of social support. Uh, so that was six, uh, Seven, take a chance. Choose action over inaction. Uh, many people go through life afraid to act. And that could be afraid to act on a personal level. It could be afraid to act on a professional level to take a chance. And we worry about acting because if you act, what might happen? You might fail. You might fail. You might, fail. You might get rejected. And so overwhelmingly, people go through life being afraid to act. But if you ask people, what are your biggest regrets? Not acting. Not acting. Overwhelmingly, people's regrets are regrets of inaction, they're not action, um, and so we have to be willing to risk failure, risk rejection, and act, because otherwise you miss out on wonderful opportunities. Um, this point was brought home to me a few years ago. I was um, teaching a class with like fifty students in it, and, and uh, the student emailed me. He was a senior, uh, and and he said, you know, you know, can I come talk to you? And I said, yes, my office hours are. And I, you know, emailed listed them back, and he wrote and said well, it's not really about um, course material. It's something personal. So could I come not during office hours? And I was like, yay. Um, anyway, but uh, so uh, we arranged a time for him to come. So he comes and sits in my office. He's a senior uh, at the time. He's not here today. Uh, he's on the football team. He's an econ major. He actually had a job lined up in New York City. And this was April of his senior year. So he comes in. He sits down. He's wearing a hat. And, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? What seems to be the issue? And he goes, well, it's about this girl. And I was like, uh, I'm like, okay. I'm like, you know, and what's, the, what's the problem? And he goes, well, where should I start? I really should start with um, when we first met, which was freshman orientation. And he then tells me what I believe was about every single moment they had spent together for three and a half years um, in a lot of detail. So uh, it was, you know, yeah, and this party, and the roommate, and this music, and the scarf, and the next night, and then dancing, and and then the next morning, and then whatever. And then it was fall break freshman year. And then there was this, and then, you know, whatever. And it was going on and on and on. It was, you know, there was a Thanksgiving, and she went to Madrid, and there was a summer, and a spring break. And again, every single moment they'd spent together for three and a half years. So the whole time he's talking, I'm going like, What's going to be the problem? And so first of all, I was like, um, oh, it's a date rape scare, which it was not, but definitely could have been. Um, (laughs) Then I was like, oh, it's like a pregnancy scare. No, also definitely could have been. And then I was like, oh, somebody has STD. No, but definitely also could have been. Uh, And so then finally, after 45 minutes, he looks up and goes, suddenly last weekend, I realized I think she's the one. What do you think I should do? (laughs) So I told him what? Tell her? Tell her? You know, I was able to do that because of my um, training in psychology. You know, (laughs) Uh, So I suggested, yeah, you should, like, let her know. And uh, and he like leapt backwards like I'd said something outrageous like you should stop wearing clothes like that my advice was just like crazy outlandish, and so here's an example of this guy who was on the football team he had the econ major he had a job lined up in New York City um he's not somebody that you would walk around and be like I bet he's afraid of rejection and here was somebody that he'd had like romantic sexual entanglements with for three and a half years. And he still was afraid of telling her. And and that's the key, is that if you go through life being afraid of acting because you risk rejection, you will overwhelmingly regret that. You will overwhelmingly regret that on a personal level and on a professional level. Um, And as Mark Twain said, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the ones you did do. So throw off the bow line, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. So take a chance. And one of the reasons why it's so important to take a chance is that even if you take a chance and it doesn't go well, we can fail and move beyond. Uh, Lots and lots of research reveals that no matter what failure you experience, we can all come back from that. Uh, in a really profound illustration of this, which no one in this room, I'm going to dare say, will remember, um, probably because you weren't alive. But uh, in the summer of the leading up to the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, there was a heated ad campaign between two Olympians, Dave and Dan. And there were you know, massive campaigns for you know, Gatorade and Pepsi and Nike and all these things. And it was, which is going to be the most decorated Olympian, Dave or Dan? You remember. You remember. Um, yeah what yeah right yeah (laughs) Um, and overwhelmingly this was all this attention was being paid and one of them Dan was the world record holder in the decathlon. He'd won the world record several times. It was really just kind of a technicality for him to go to Barcelona and pick up his gold. Uh, so he's at the Olympic trials, uh, where you have to, of course, you know, compete to represent the United States. And he's on his eighth event, the pole vault. He's head and shoulders above everybody else like he always is. And the way the pole vault works is you get three tries to go over that bar. So uh, Dan backs up, sets the bar at a level that he's cleared before. He runs, 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 sticks the pole in, jumps up, and his toe hits the bar and the bar drops. But it doesn't matter because he's got two more tries and you know he's cleared this height before, it's no problem. So he backs up, runs, 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 puts the pole in, jumps up. His foot again touches the bar, the bar drops. But again, it's fine because he's cleared this height. He's the world record holder. He's going to be able to go get that gold medal. He just has to clear this bar. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. So in his third and final time, he backs up Runs, 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 sticks the pole in, jumps up. His foot again touches the bar, the bar drops, and he's disqualified. He's not going to Barcelona. He can't go represent the United States. And it was like the biggest debacle in Olympic trial history. They had to pull the ads. You know, again, it was this like nightmare of this person's not going. So major failure, and failure that played out on national television. Uh, Four years later, 96 summer games in Atlanta, Dan competes again, goes to Olympic trials, succeeds, goes to Atlanta, wins the gold medal. And a reporter came up to him afterwards and said, how did you manage to come back from like the most colossal choke in Olympic history four years ago? What in the world did you do? And he says, I'll tell you what I did. For the last four years, every morning I got up, I got out of bed. And I took my VHS tape. If you Google that, you'll find out what it is. Um, and I put it in my VCR. That'll come up when you Google VHS. And, uh, and I watched myself choke the games. And the first day, it was horrible. <laughs> and the 10th day, it was horrible. And the 50th day, it was pretty bad. The 100th day, it was still pretty sad. And the 500th day, I was over it. I wallowed in it. I owned it. I admitted it. And that let me move beyond it. So most of us are not going to fail on national television. And they're not going to have to pull ad campaigns. And it's not going to be immortalized forever for everybody to see in sports center debacle highlights. Um, We can all come back. And and that's why we should risk taking a chance, because no matter what happens, we have the ability to come back. And even if we fail, there is something powerful in failing. Um, As Teddy Roosevelt said, The credit belongs to those who are actually in the arena, who strive valiantly, who know the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spin themselves in a worthy cause, who at best know the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if they fail, fail while daring greatly, so that their place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. So again, there is value in trying. And even if you fail, there's value. Uh, Nine, keep stress in perspective. We talked about that before. You did the exercise. Uh, We all go through life worried about stress. And the challenge is that has lots of negative implications for psychological and physical well-being. There's a wonderful book that I don't get royalties on, but I really should because I recommend it all the time. Um, And it's called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Guess why zebras don't get ulcers? When do zebras show physiological reactivity? Heart beating, fast muscles, tense, rapid breathing. Guess when zebras do it? When being chased by a lion. Yeah, when they're being chased by a lion, when they're about to die. That's when zebras do it. Guess when humans do it? (laughs) All the time. I've got a lot of emails in my inbox. (laughs) Stuck in traffic. You know, I'm late for my plane. Um, Humans do it all the time. When they're not on the verge of death. And that's why humans have so many stress-related illnesses. Um, this point was brought home to me a few years ago. Um, I had given an exam, an intro to psychology. A student um, emailed me and said, I'm really stressed about my grade in your class. You know, can, can I come talk to you? And I said, you know, sure, that's fine. For the record, he had a B+. Um, so I said, that's fine. So we came in to make an appointment. And unfortunately for him, the day that he came in to talk to me was the day of the Sandy Hook shootings. And I had a daughter in first grade at the time, and I had spent the entire morning on my computer, like, maybe there's a classroom of kids that are just like really well hidden, and they're going to be OK. Maybe they've taken kids to the hospital, and they're just not telling the media, so maybe that's going to be OK. And of course, it gradually became clear that it really you know, was not going to be OK. So the kid walks in, and he's like, you know, I'm really stressed about my, you know, my B plus in your class. And I said, do you know that there's like 20 first graders dead in an elementary school in Connecticut? And he said, "Yeah, I think I heard something about that, like on the internet." Um, but so about my B plus, and I was like, "Your B plus doesn't matter. Like, it has gonna have no impact on your life. Get over it. You know, move beyond. You know, it doesn't matter." And he goes, "Well, you know, might want to go to law school. So my grades, you know, kind of do matter." And I said, "I'm married to a lawyer." I am 100% certain he had some B pluses in college. You know, you can still be a lawyer. Anyway, so he walked out of the room. I later became his advisor. He didn't hate me. But But in that moment, I just couldn't go with the B pluses, this giant tragedy. Because a tragedy is sending your kid to school and the kid not coming home. That's a tragedy. A B plus is not. And we all have parallels in our lives in which we can think about what is the difference between an actual stressor um, and what is really not a stressor and basically be more like the zebra. Save the physiological reactivity for when you are being chased by the equivalent of the lion, not about the B plus, the inbox, in you know, the traffic jam. Um, and then finally, um, and, and I do this one last because it is really the most important, and that is that we don't want to have adverse things experience. A, a, to happen to us or our loved ones. We don't want to have those. But the reality is we learn a ton from experiencing adverse events, that experiencing adverse events lets us develop really important skills and resilience. Many colleges uh, do sort of um, outward bound orientation kind of activities, like hiking or canoeing or camping. Who's been on one of those kind of things? Yeah, it's a very common thing. The reason why colleges do it is that people who go on one of those trips, are a little bit out of their element. How is this going to go? And I'm not that good at canoeing. And are we going to be able to start the fire and you know, eat and whatever? And people are kind of like a little bit out of their element. And then they survive it. And that gives them confidence. When they later experience stressors during college, it helps their resilience. And people who go on one of those trips actually show greater resilience for months after in all sorts of other kind of domains of their lives. And And this is an illustration of the power of even if we experience some adversity, being able to embrace that adversity with what is gained and not just what is lost. And my final story to you speaks to the power of our ability to do this uh, as being fundamentally important no matter what. And it's a story, a true story, about a student who was a sophomore at Princeton University a number of years ago. One night um, he was returning home to his dorm, he was very drunk, it was 3 a.m., He climbed on top of a little train at the edge of the Princeton campus called the Dinky, a little train that actually runs um, kids to an Amtrak train to come to New York City. And he's very drunk. He climbs on top of the train, and he grabs the two electric wires. So he's severely electrocuted. He lived. His friend with him called 911. But this is a picture of him today. He lost both of his legs, and he lost one of his arms in that experience. He was helicoptered to a local hospital, underwent extensive um, physical therapy, plastic surgery, um, eventually returned to Princeton with the help of a, a guide dog that helped him do some tasks. He became pre-med. He finished Princeton, applied to medical school, attended medical school, and today is a doctor living and working in San Francisco. So he was interviewed by the Princeton Alumni Magazine a few years ago. And the reporter asked him the question that I imagine we would all ask him if we had the opportunity to meet him. If you could go back in time and undo that night and change that event that dramatically influenced your life, your body in fundamental ways, would you go back in time and undo that night? And here's what he said. No, too much good stuff has come out of it. I was not headed towards a career in medicine before the accident, and I don't think I'd be as good a physician if I hadn't had that experience. So he works today with quadriplegics, with amputees. And what he says is, when I walk into somebody's hospital room, they look at my body, and there's an instant feeling of rapport and connection and empathy. Because by looking at me, they understand that I get what they're going through. And this experience lets me be a better physician because of it. And that's a really powerful example of the power of mindset, of taking what is clearly a fundamental tragedy, and adopting a positive mindset about what is gained. And um, my final quote for you speaks to that. It's um, from a wonderful book called My Losing Season by Pat Conroy. Some of you may know it. Um, But it's a book about a basketball team that loses and loses and loses again and the lessons that he took from that experience of a season of loss. And here's the quote. Sports books are always about winning, because winning is far more pleasurable and exhilarating to read about than losing. Winning is wonderful in every aspect, but the darker music of loss resonates on deeper, richer planes. Loss is a fiercer, more uncompromising teacher, cold-hearted but clear-eyed in its understanding that life is more dilemma than game and more trial than free pass. My acquaintance with loss has sustained me during the stormy passages of my life when the pink slips came through the door, when the checks bounced at the bank, when I told my small children I was leaving their mother, when the despair caught up with me, when the dreams of suicide began feeling like love songs of release. Though I learned some things from the games we won that year, I learned much, much more from loss." And that's the power of being able to take tremendously adverse experiences and thinking about what we gain from those experiences, not just what we've lost. And the power of adopting a positive mindset for us, psychologically, physically, is extraordinarily important in terms of increasing better happiness, increasing better health, increasing longevity, as we described before. And and the key is, is that when we adopt a positive mindset, it means when we experience failure, rejection, et cetera, we can grow and learn and move beyond it. So I started today's talk by describing my son, the Spanish scholar, and his um, literal 50 in Spanish midway through his freshman year of high school. So Andrew continued with Spanish throughout high school. Um, He finished high school, applied to college, was admitted to college. Um, But the summer before he started, he came to me, my husband, and said, I've decided that before I go to college, I want to accomplish a personal goal. And my personal goal is I'd like to be bilingual. And I'd like to do a gap year. So Andrew spent his year before college in Peru, Uh, living with a Peruvian family, herding llamas, taking salsa dancing lessons, speaking Spanish full time. And he's now a sophomore in college, majoring in Spanish. Spanish. Um, And that is an example of the positive mindset, that when things go poorly, all the adults around him, drop it, drop it, you suck at it, quit. but the positive mindset allowed him to persevere. And now he's fully bilingual, which I am not, and my husband is not. Um, so you all have been a wonderful audience. We're going to turn it over now to, to Q&A. Um, but I want to say that if anybody wants a copy of this presentation, there's my email. I, I'm glad to send it out immediately. Uh, I also have a website where you can watch a version of this or listen to a version of this, et cetera. And I do have a new book coming out. Do they have some kind of a coupon or something? There's coupon, right, on it or something? Yeah. All right, there you go. So there is. Um, uh, I so I there, um, and and it's available for pre-order now on Amazon and whatever it talks about lots of the stuff here that we've talked about today so um, and I think you get a discount on with 10% off. there you I go use okay the fine. Positive. All oh, right. So anyway, so and that is there. So you all have been a lovely audience. And if, and if I don't have time to ask your question or if you have a question that you don't want to ask in this group, it's also totally fine to email me as well um, with a question. Sometimes things will occur to you later. And um, you'll let me know when I've overstayed my welcome. But, um, but we'll turn it over to Q&A. Excellent. Excellent. And thank you all. You've been a lovely audience. Yeah. Hi. Uh, You're awesome. I love Oh, thank you. Well, it's very hard to come up with an exact number because part of it is that people sort of change over time. But what we do know is a couple things. One, we know that people tend to get more positive with age, so that's a good thing that you can all look forward to. We know um, that women tend to be a little bit less happy than men pretty consistently. um, And that, that women have higher rates of depression and anxiety than men at all points of the life span with the exception of college in which men and women are equally depressed so you can look at that as glass half full or glass half empty depending on you know whatever and um, and what's what's particularly interesting though is that one of the things and this really relates to mindset is that when bad things happen to women, women tend to wallow and obsess about them and ruminate women, women are like, yeah, you know, they call people, oh, and then this happened, and then they call other people, and then this happened, and whatever. And men are like, I'm gonna go play basketball, let's turn on TV. You know, but men are very good about letting it go. And for a long time, people in the psychology psychological community were like, men really aren't processing and dealing with things when they're bad. You know, it's really not healthy. And women are really dealing with it. As it turns out, what's weird is that wallowing in bad things makes you feel bad. Um, And so it's actually, so there's a fair amount of evidence that that women kind of need to get out of that negative cycle of rumination in terms of experiencing greater positivity. And and the, the other key thing is that about half of our happiness is determined by our genes. So that means some people do have a head start. But that means half is not, and that's the part I care about. More questions for me.
0: How do you approach somebody who is struggling with depression and try to explain this concept to them, and how does that differ from somebody who's coming from a baseline
1: in a better place? Yeah. So, so that's a really important question. So here's the thing: when people are depressed, they don't have the wherewithal to do any of this. Because that's the hallmark of depression, that depression is like paralysis. And so people who are truly clinically depressed, like truly at that level, um, they don't have the ability to say, I should go for a walk, I should spend time in nature, I should, you know, whatever, spend money on experiences. And so for people who are truly clinically depressed, getting assistance either through therapy and or drug, you know, antidepressants is essential. And one of the keys is that then when people climb out of that hole, they can then look around and say, "Okay, now there are some things I can do. So for people who are truly clinically depressed, they can't actually effectuate any of that because they feel hopeless and helpless. Um, and so these strategies are really for, for people who are baseline, OK, but could be happier, um, or people who are clinically depressed after they've climbed out a little bit. So it's not a solution in terms of alternative to therapy. I think I saw someone over here. Yes? I don't know about people this, but one of the things that's probably when keeping a positive
0: outlook is when things negative things happen to me that are outside my control.
1: Yeah, and so part of the issue is that, that negative things do happen to people all the time that are outside of their control, right? I mean, that's just true. And so part of it is being able to say, um, is this going to be something that I can put any sort of a positive spin on? Is there anything I can do about this that's going to put a positive spin on it? I'll, this is an example that I read about in the, um, in, the in New York Times op ed. but. Uh, uh, person parents going to a bad parent teacher conference, you know, about their kid and basically they got bad news about how poorly their kid was doing. So that's, you know, outside of their control but also kind of depressing. And they get in the car and the wife turns to the husband and says, "Well, at least we know he's not cheating." And so there, there is a positive spin on you know that sort of an experience. And so I think part of it is that many times bad things happen to us, um, and we don't have the ability to sort of pull ourselves out and say, "Is this really bad? Is this not really bad?" I'm going to give you two more examples. That I yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was have a yeah, fact. yeah. Give me a fault. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So I have a whole other talk that specifically is on happiness, and that's one of the keys is that. Well, let me let's do a show of hands here. Um, who goes to sleep at night thinking about the problems that you're facing in your to-do list? <laughs> and so th- th- people often have trouble getting to sleep because of that. And so the gratitude journal is a wonderful thing to do, which is writing down two or three things every day that you're grateful for in your life right now. I'm going to say two other things that I think really speak to that also. One thing is really trying to keep things in perspective. So I gave the example um, of the, you know, the kid coming to see me about the B+. Uh, I'll tell another part of that story, which is I gave a version of this talk a few years ago at a conference in uh, Manhattan at this nice restaurant on Park Avenue for women venture capitalists. So that was the group, Okay, women venture capitalists. So I gave this talk, you know, whatever, and people lined up afterwards to ask me questions. So this woman comes up after and she goes, you know, I really liked your talk, it was really good, but um, I kind of have to disagree with that advice you gave that kid about letting the B plus go that it wouldn't be a big deal and i was like what like it was a very weird <laughs> it was the first time anybody's ever said that and i was like what what do you mean and she goes well um, because i went to harvard law school and i know that if you if you want to get into harvard law school you can't have any b pluses like so when you said it wouldn't really matter that like you really weren't that wasn't really true and i said no, I said he could be a lawyer. I didn't say he could go to Harvard. Like, I, I, I said you can be a lawyer. And, um, and she said, well, yeah, I know, but I am happier um, having gone to Harvard. So when you told him that, you know, he was not going to be, um, you know, that wasn't really true. And I said, you know what's weird? I'm like, there's actually no evidence suggesting that people who go to Harvard are happier than people who don't. And she looked surprised to hear that. But anyway, so she, you know, walked away. So there's another woman who was, like, waiting in line behind her and had heard that entire, like, interaction. And that woman walks up to me and goes, that woman's an idiot. And, like, said it, like, a little bit loudly. Like, I was like, oh, they're never going to invite me back here. Anyway, so, um, and she goes, let me tell you about my husband who went to Harvard Law School. And she says, we were living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. We had two little girls, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. He was working in a high-powered law firm. And one night, he drove to the George Washington Bridge. And he killed himself. And she said, there's nothing about going to Harvard that makes you happy. There's nothing about having a degree from Harvard Law School that protected him from that. And, and, and there is an example of perspective taking, right? That, again, that part of it is, you know, what is stress? What is not stress? And I think one of the challenges is that many things happen to us that we think, well, this is just terrible. So I'll give you, I'll give you one more example, and then I'll go on. But So I have a son. My middle child is a senior in high school right now. And maybe some of you all remember, you know, the experience and the stress of applying to colleges, you know, senior year, blah, 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 applications. So Robert is experiencing absolutely no stress. And the reason for that is that he's not that bright and he's not that hard a worker, um, which is okay. We still love him. Uh, But here's here's Robert's goal in terms of going to college. Robert has two goals. He wants to be somewhere warm and near a Chili's. (laughs) And if you want to go somewhere warm and near a Chili's, There's like a huge number of schools. Like, there's really a lot of schools. And so Robert has taken the whole college admissions thing in a very relaxed way. He plays video games. He hangs out with his friends. He has a girlfriend, whatever, because he's not stressed about it. And it's a wonderful example of how we have a choice about what we do and do not experience as stress. Um, Yes? So changing mindset is very hard. And my assumption is that it requires triggers. Form of, of impetus to make such a change. Do you have any guidance, or any research on what causes these impetuses to happen to have prolonged? Yeah, so, so there's, there's actually really interesting research on that. So, one, I talked at the very end about the power of adversity. Research has shown that people who've gone through very easy, normal, happy lives actually are less happy than people who've experienced some bad stuff. So, it's kind of counter to predictions. Now, so people who've experienced a lot of bad stuff, you know divorce, death, you know, death of loved ones, you know, getting fired, et cetera. They have lower happiness. But there's a middle curve. And so what's interesting is that people who have had some bad stuff happen to them develop resilience. They develop some resilience. So actually, there like a moderate level of adversity seems to be advantageous. And one of the reasons might be that it helps you develop skills and strategies for changing mindset. So, so one thing is there are triggers that, are, of course, are things we don't want to have experience, but we can embrace them in that sense. The other thing is practice. That the other thing is practice. And, and I think one of the biggest challenges, and I didn't talk about this today in the interest of time, but I think one of the biggest challenges today is um, the presence of social media that social media often lets people kind of have this belief that everybody else is having this perfectly good and easy and happy life except for me. Um, And that can actually cause tremendous stress. And so one of the keys is being able to sort of recognize and do some of this work to say, what is the difference between how I'm choosing to look at this versus how I could look at this? And we all have huge amounts of control over that and getting better at that distinction. Um, This point was brought home to me. I I was uh, asked to give a talk in Los Angeles um, for this uh, fundraiser for this couple. And so I, you know, flew out, again, Massachusetts, you know, long trip. And I, you know, took a, a cab to this family's home. And, and the home was beautiful. It was a beautiful home in Los Angeles, beautiful wife, beautiful husband, two, like, very well-behaved kids, um, you know, waiters with silver trays, you know, passing around, you know, et cetera, beautiful environment, et cetera. And I basically sat there, and, of course, I was talking about, like, happiness and stuff. And I was like, you know... My house isn't that clean, and <laughs> my kids aren't that well-behaved. And you know, Again, it's sort of feeling grumpy about myself. So I get in the cab at the end of the night. I get back to the hotel, and I Google the, um, the family, because I'm going to write a thank you note for you know, having hosted this fundraiser. And, uh, and I found out, through the, the act of Google, that what I had met was a wife and her second husband. And this woman, when she was 24, was living in Manhattan. Uh, she'd gotten married in August, college sweetheart. And he was in the North Tower on 9-11. And he was on the 89th floor, so you know, the impact floor. He didn't call. You know, didn't, you know, she didn't hear from him. And so what I was meeting was her second husband. And so there was this moment in which I had spent this time in this family's home being like, their life is perfect. Their life is easy, magical. You know, And she knows pain that I don't know. And, and, and that's one of the challenges, that when we're looking at people's lives on Instagram, you know, on Facebook, on Twitter, whatever, we're looking at what they're presenting. And what they might be presenting is everything's going great. Um, and, and starting to do that practice of ourselves of, I know that's what I'm seeing, but that may not be what's really going on. And being able to start practicing disentangling the perception from the reality is a really important part of changing mindset. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com dream big and stay inspired